I'm Dave Tornio, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Adrian Matika. Adrian is a poet and teacher of creative writing at the University of Indiana. His books of poetry are The Devil's Garden, Mixology, and The Big Smoke. Mixology won the National Poetry Series, selected by Kevin Young, and The Big Smoke was a National Book Award finalist and runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize. Welcome to Profiles, Adrian. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here, man. One thing I want to jump to that really stuck out when I read some things about your childhood is that uh, your father had 2,000-plus jazz records. And he also introduced you to rap, Rum DMC and uh, Public Enemy. Yeah. So uh, I wonder how that influences your work now. Well, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, all we did was listen to music, Mm -hmm. you know. And and I should also say that my dad, in addition to being this great jazz head, was also um, a dancer on Soul Train. And so we had this overlap between jazz and funk and disco that was going on around us. You know, mm-hmm. they would have these crazy parties, these crazy disco parties when I was a kid mm-hmm. and Earth, Wind & Fire and Stevie Wonder and this kind of thing. And, you know, and for my parents, there was a very seamless space between you know, Miles Davis and Stevie Wonder. Like these things were all part of the same conversation. They never said, hey, listen, this is jazz or, or you know, hey, listen, this is funk. It was mm-hmm. all part of the discussion. Until they'd play the Beatles, and then that was a different thing. Yeah, you know, my mother I was abused. Yeah, she, and she, you know, so that got qualified, right? You yeah. know, um, I remember I, for my 14th birthday, my mom gave me a copy of the uh, White Album, mm-hmm. and it didn't make any sense to me at all. And I came back to her and I said, "Mom, I don't, I don't even understand this." And she's like, "You will." <laughs> you know? So something she, right. she felt you would grow into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my father was a little bit different than that. I mean, when he was around, he didn't really, um, he didn't really explain. Or offer, he just put things on, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned Run DMC and, and mm-hmm. some of those folks. My dad actually introduced me to uh, the Sugar Hill Gang, like it was yeah. before that. And and so he he introduced me to rap really early. And wow. then he was gone, and I found the rest of it myself. What a gift, yeah, you know, yeah. um, to have that presented to you by your father and that connection. Yeah, um, there's a, there's a poem um, that's pretty interesting called Vinyl. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want to read that, <laughs> yeah. but that that was yeah. um, that's a powerful, a powerful uh, poem. You know, it's a lot about your dad, yeah. and then a lot about your mom too. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, my mother loves this book. She listens, mm-hmm. you know, so this the vinyl is in the Devil's Garden, and she loves the Devil's Garden. It's like her, my favorite book of hers, uh, or her favorite book of mine, because it's the one that's all about her. <laughs> you know. So, you know, she's like, you know, this Jack Johnson book is pretty cool. You know, this mixology stuff about, right, yeah, it's all right. She's like, but the devil's garden, that's when you got it right. And I think that this, is, this poem is one of the reasons that she, can, she feels that way. Mm. Vinyl. While marriage was difficult, the divorce was simple. Dad packed, mom watched. Dad got the records, mom got the kids. Three afroed half and halves with no idea of the goings on. That was Germany, after Agent Orange helped color the apartment with Mom's blood, after Mom rat-holed enough money to leave. Divorce was just the beginning, no need to mention my sister, waiting by the window like a storybook lover, or my daily evac from the school bus to be sure my mom would still be there when I came home. 
What is worth mentioning are the records. Before Dad and I loaded the car with them, Mom put a dot of glue on each one. Vinyl gently returned to the sleeve. There was significance for her in the 2,000 drops. Three tubes worth, if I remember right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> revenge. Mom's yeah, revenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mentioned um, my dad being on Soul Train, and that mm-hmm. was sort of what got everything started. You yeah. know, I mean, we weren't allowed to watch it because you know, there were always some kind of shenanigans going on with my yeah. dad. And when she, you know, and so she made her plans, left him, and left him a gift on the way out. <laughs> there's a there's another poem mm-hmm. uh, in The Devil's Garden where um, I think it's before vinyl in the mm-hmm. book. And it kind of tells the story of your involvement. I, I don't know how much fiction there is or fact in your poems because I'm sure you probably mix the two, I would yeah, assume. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, it, you know, they talk about Soul Train and your mm-hmm. father's invol- his, his involvement in that program. Yeah. And uh, I wonder, there might be a lot of viewers who don't know what Soul Train is, if there's younger listeners, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do you want to talk a little <laughs> bit about Soul Train? Yeah, what, you know, it's yeah. funny because it's, a, it's such a, you know, it's such an institution mm-hmm. for those of us of a certain age. Okay, so, well, Soul Train, right? I mean, here's my dad, you know, fancy disco dancer with his big bell bottoms and his leisure suit or whatever. Um, it was a show that was, it's like the black version of American Bandstand, you know? I mean, so you've got these African-American dancers, you have African-American musicians who come on and people just dance on the show to their music. I mean, the funny thing is almost all of them lip sync, but part of the action and part of the illusion is people uh, pretending like they're actually playing, you know? I remember seeing, uh, so David Bowie, showed up around 1975 or 76 on the show. Um, He was like the first big white star to be on Soul Train. Before that, it was like all African-American acts. Mm -hmm. Um, Around the same time, Elton John showed up and played Benny and the Jets. And I I bring this up because you can see it. You can find these clips on YouTube of him playing. And he's one of the only ones, Elton John's one of the only ones that doesn't lip sync. Oh, he actually sang. He's actually actually singing. He's got this see-through piano that he's playing while he's singing. And at first... You know, these brothers on the show don't know what to do with this guy. And, I mean, and anybody who's heard Benny and the Jets knows it's, it's, it's the jam, but, like, it, it's a particular kind of song. Mm-hmm. If you were just listening to Sly and the Family Stone or you were just listening to Parliament Funkadelic and then all of a sudden Benny and the Jets is on, it's not, um, you know, there's not a lot of continuity there, right? Um, but he gets on and he starts playing. And as he gets going, you can see them buying into what he's doing. And it's oh. really great to see him sort of win this audience over. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of it had to do with that he's actually singing. Yeah. You know, that there were so many dance shows. Yeah. But Soul Train, I, I grew up in Orange County, California, yeah. extremely white. Yeah. And that might have been our only encounter, like, where we saw black people who weren't being stereotyped in movies or, mm-hmm. you know, other things. And that, that served a real purpose, I think, for white America to yeah. learn a little bit about, you know, black America, dancing, music. Oh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, I'm talking about, you know, the 60s, yeah, early 70s, yeah. It's a real introduction, yeah. you know. I mean, um, and you had Don Cornelius, who was like one of the coolest dudes mm-hmm. in the world, you mm-hmm. know, um, as the chaperone of this whole of this whole thing. And, um, yeah, and my, my uncle and my father, my uncles, there were three of them, I think, um, and my father would all go, and they would, you know, they'd tape all day. And then, you know, these shows would air later. Um, oh, I see. Yeah. So your uncles were on the show as well? Yeah. Every, oh, my. My, my dad's whole family is from L.A. Yeah. And so we were all out there together. Um, okay. And so, yeah, it's a whole other deal. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, some of the things that I dealt with when I was a child don't need dramatizing. They're already dramatic. Um, but making those moments like, I don't know, the Soul Train set for someone who's not familiar with Soul Train, uh, making that more three-dimensional, I think, is a necessary part of writing a good poem, you know. Um, it can't just be about the writer. It can't be about the writer's history solely in that moment. It needs to be something that anyone coming to it can find uh, a moment of access if they're in, so inclined, mm-hmm. you know. And so that poem was true. Like, my mom did that to my dad. Yes. And, you know, and I, I imagine that she laughed long and hard about it after she did because those were the most important things. I mean, in the poem, I said, you know, my dad got the records, but that's what he wanted. He didn't want us. He wanted the records. And so mm-hmm. to give him the records um, in this unplayable, you know, kind yeah. of way, is pretty, he could, we could probably play one side of the record, you know, but the other right. one was, was gone. Would you like to read that poem about your dad on Soul Train and your kind of? You know, yeah, I can. I can read that. Um, I think um, it's it's long. It's pretty long. Yeah. So maybe I'll read just part of it. Okay. Because um, it's got two two sections. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll read the first one. Okay. That starts with a quote. Um, the poem is called "Peace and Soul." And it starts with a quote from my dad, the thing that he said when he found out, like when my mom confronted him about his infidelity. He's like, it wasn't me, baby. And so that was always this like, you know, running joke with my friends was that once you get caught, you say, you know, it wasn't me. And somehow you can get out of it, Um, which is not actually true. (laughs) Peace and soul. Until I ratted him out. Mom's suspicions were ethereal. Dad and uncle, shimbang hips shaped by the hustle. Mom thought the afro-topped hot pants between them looked familiar, but dad would say, it's just dance, baby. Things changed when I named the girl Diane and gave her characteristics. Giver of cakes and candy on Tuesday. Owner of Lincoln Logs, unsafe for children. Don Cornelius's peace and soul didn't stop me from naming the others for immunity from the wooden spoon. Susie with the fight-starting son. Jennifer with a neighbor who took me to the same movie house twice a week. Jennifer's best friend, Esmeralda, able to cut my hair easy on the scalp. My mother didn't confront. She arranged her own rendezvous. Part-time job altering clothing. Needle pricks hidden in the dishes and soapy water. Dad didn't find out until three years later. We were on a plane to Indiana without him, where Soul Train reruns aired Sunday nights at 11. Thanks. Yeah, that's. Uh... We're we're talking to Adrian Matika here on Profiles WFIU. Um, Adrian just read a couple poems from um, The Devil's Garden. You know, Mixology too is a powerful book, and one of the, some of the poems in that collection that really moved me were the elegies, mm-hmm. um, and the the poems about uh, Bob Kaufman, mm-hmm. the, the poem about Bob Kaufman, yeah, um, and then. I'm I'm drawn to the poem "Old an Old Hand" uh, for Lorenzo Thomas, and I'm not sure who Lorenzo Thomas is. Could you tell us about him? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, uh, Lorenzo Thomas uh, was a uh, a member of the Black Arts Movement. He was mm-hmm. a writer that he was a writer of that time period and that um, political sort of conception, you know. Mm-hmm. But he got throat cancer 
and and was unable to write for a long time. Uh, he wrote you know several amazing books, but he he isn't as well known as some of the other writers of his time and his stature because of this illness, especially outside of Texas. He lived in Houston for a very long time and taught there for a long time, and so people in Texas and in particular in Houston, um, where we were living near when I was working on some of the poems in this book, um, they all revered Lorenzo and. Um, I only met him one time, and I don't know that I've ever met anybody as generous as him. He was one of the most gracious, kind human beings I've ever met. Um, I was just completely stunned by, you know, I liked his work already, but just as a person and the way he carried himself in the world in spite of this really challenging um, second act to his life because of this cancer, he was still just so gracious and so generous. Mm-hmm. So... um I felt, and I and I, I I didn't it didn't I don't know that it really came across in the poem, but in some ways I didn't feel like I was the right one to write an elegy for him because I only met him in person that once. But at the same time, I felt like he was he had such a profound effect on me in like four hours that the very you know I wanted to, yeah. and so I, I started thinking about how to write that poem right after I met him. And then, you know, then when he passed, I sort of, the, the urge to write it came mm-hmm. back, you know. Yeah. You know, that's a big thing about the black arts and, and um, writers with these kind of social and cultural and political bents. A lot of times they're thinking about poetry as a community endeavor. They're thinking about poetry, poetry as a, uh, a way to educate or a way to inform or to, you know, to activate people, you know. And I think sometimes we forget that that's, you know, that was what poetry was for before. Mm-hmm. And it and it's such an effective medium for that. He was such a special person. He was a mentor to several of my friends. And I think that was mm-hmm. the other part. I felt like they had a, a poem that they needed to write for him. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to get in the way of that. But there's a lot of room to be grateful for people, I think. Yeah. An old hand for Lorenzo Thomas, 1944 to 2005. In fact, I just realized I met him in 2004, so it was right, you know, right before he passed. When we met, he was old enough to be put together with leaded gas and gut strings, but this man shook my hand like he was the lucky one, instead of that lucky being me, counting up my nickels at the end of the day, hoping to make some kind of sense. Oh, you don't know the pain, he said, about a picture of a Salvadoran girl. This man who wrote shouting poems, rhyming poems, poems winking like Red Fox records. The night we met, he read an old hand, smiling the whole time, answers showing up before the question, oh, you don't know the pain. And later that night, drunk and arguing with my woman again, trying to brawl away out of Houston, the Houston humidity like a cat in a bathtub, I thought of that frail man, the water of his words torn piece by piece by cancer. I thought of his generosity and fought all the harder. So, you know, we've talked about music in your life and some influences. Um, Who are your influences now? Who do you go to for inspiration in your reading or music or... Yeah, you know, I have, it's been a weird, it's been a weird year, a couple of years of inspiration, you know, mm-hmm. um, for so, for for a very long time, all I did was do research about Jack Johnson and write these Jack Johnson mm-hmm. related poems. And so there wasn't really um, the kind of artistic reaching that I've usually done. Like, I mean, you know, when I was writing mixology, I was listening to Fela, 
Filakuti, and I was looking at um, you know, these spreads of paintings from Egon Schiele, and like looking at all these different, you know, looking in different universes for inspiration for poetry. And with Jack Johnson, it was this very specific thing. And so now that I'm breaking out of that again, and I have been for a little while, I've not been reading as much as I've been studying. Um, I'm working on the, uh, a series of poems about astronomy. And so I've been doing a lot of research about astronomy and spending a lot of time looking at the stars and star charts and things like that. So far, it's not really paying off. <laughs> you know, There's a lot of poems that mention stars, but the direct connection to the sort of astronomical is that even a word? Astronomical? Is that even a word? Mm-hmm. Um, astronomical universe mm-hmm. uh, is is not, it, it, the, the connections aren't being made yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I need to get back in and start digging into some books of poems. Well, I have to say, I, I found a poem online that you wrote. I think it's a new poem where you're a kid on your bicycle and you're going to like a mall. Oh, yeah. And you buy yeah, a yeah. shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and the shirt has has um, yeah, it, planets and, and Yeah, there's constellations stars. and yeah. stuff. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. called a Map to the Stars. Yeah, that yeah was, that's a beautiful poem. Yeah, I love thank that. you. Thanks for saying yeah, that, man. Yeah. It was, um, that was one of the first ones I wrote about this. Um, okay. I wrote it when I was in Texas um, doing this thing called the Lannan Residency. And it's way out west in Marfa, Texas, in the middle of nowhere. Like you, you, you fly to El Paso, which is kind of pretty far out west and not really near anything and then you have to drive three more hours out into the even further into the Mm. texas wilds you know and it's this little town with all these great restaurants and an enormous collection of um art somehow Mm -hmm. um it's a place where they filmed no country for old men and there will be blood like it's this really bleak you know west texas high Mm -hmm. desert landscape and there's this great art uh, residency there and i was there for almost a month uh, just working. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the nights after I'd been working, I was working on the Jack Johnson book, and all, all one of the nights after I'd finished working on on those poems, I went out to the McDonald Observatory, uh, which is one of the largest observatories in the continental U.S., and looked in a telescope at Saturn, you know, and just sat there looking at Saturn, you know. And when I came back, all of these poems about the stars and constellations started coming together Mm -hmm. but i realized pretty quickly that i didn't have enough scientific grounding you know so that's what you're studying now yes that's what i'm studying now yeah that's what i'm studying i've been working on that part of things but in terms of in terms of reading you know i mean there are a lot of people who whose work really moves me you know i was uh of course you know we have a mutual friend ross gay Mm -hmm. you know his work always inspires me and you know and his readings too you know, they inspire yeah. me. And another one of my colleagues, Kathy Bowman, she wrote this great book called The Plath Cabinet that's all these strange collages of bits and pieces of Sylvia Plath's books. And so I'm looking at these different kinds of approaches just around me, yeah. you know, and really getting a lot out of that. You know, that makes me think of about your community here in yeah. Bloomington. You know, you, you mentioned Kathy Bowman, yeah. Ross Gay. Um, there's so many poets in this community, too. Yeah. I wonder how that has affected your sense of place and feeling part of the community. Yeah, well, we know I went to school here as an undergrad Mm -hmm. like 20 years ago. (laughs) And so, you know, it was a very strange thing to come back in a different capacity because everywhere I go in town, I run into my 22-year-old self, you know. Mm -hmm. Like when I first got here, I was renting a place um, on 10th in college. And when I'd walk to Ballantyne to my office, I'd walk by my old apartment. You know, from like you know, 1993 or 94, and it looks exactly the same. It's still run down, the same bad paint job, you know. Um, and I'd walk by it every day and have to confront myself when I was 
20 or 21 years yeah. old, you know. And so it took me a little while to get used to being back here. But as soon as I got comfortable with the 42-year-old version of me being here, I realized that there's this great energy and this great creative kind of impulse around this town, you know, Um, because it's not just poetry, you know. I mean, there are these brilliant fiction writers here, you know, there are these... um, amazing like uh, like students and artisans and you know you just go to the Saturday market and there are all these people just you know growing things in this really artistic and gorgeous way so you know I mean there there are all these confluences of of art and creation in this town Mm -hmm. and then you know teaching you know so you're you're encountering um young poets young writers aspiring you know artists writers what what's that like for you to be working with them, and what do you bring to that to that workshop? You know, it's, it's funny because I, I like mm-hmm. to to you know preen around like I actually did something in workshop, but they are so good already, and they do so much work on their own that I'm just there like a hall monitor or something. You know, I turn them mm-hmm. on to some books sometimes, I suggest things for them to listen to sometimes. But you know, our writers at the university, particularly I mean, in the graduate students in particular in the MFA program, they're brilliant. You know, they're already doing this. I just happen to be intersecting with them, yeah. you know, and so I try to help them the best I can. And usually it comes um, in the form of pointing them to people, you know, like, hey, you, you're writing this way. You should check out, you know, mm-hmm. um, George Oppen or, you know, you should go over here and take a look at Yusuf Komanyaka, you know, or maybe, you know, you, you missed out on Lucille Clifton, but you're, you know, you're riffing the same way she does, you know. Oh, yeah. And so like talk to them in ways like that that help contextualize their work in the larger poetic discussion. You know, when you were asking me what I was reading, I was thinking about that. I'm doing all this, you know, reading these fairly dry astronomy textbooks and things like that. But I was also going back and looking at Terrence Hayes' book, Lighthead, again, which has got this sort of interesting take on the universe, or Tracy K. Smith's Life on Mars. Her, her father was one of the scientists on the, uh, that designed the Hubble telescope. And so there are these different things that you can find. Our Lyra Van Cleef Stefanen wrote this really brilliant book called Open Interval. And it's... Um, she found out that her name, like the name Lyrae, is a name of a star. And so she did started doing all this work on this kind of star. And they're these really crazy kind of, like, I mean, very mathematical and brilliant poems. Jimi Hendrix shows up in them. And, you know, and so there are these totems There's the, in her book that I think are really, you know, really valuable. So, yeah, I mean, so I guess I am reading other things, too. That's Yeah, you sound really busy. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was going to ask, too, you know, when, you, when you're teaching a craft, you're teaching a workshop, yeah. a lot of times kids come and the only poets they've read maybe in high school were like Tennyson and... You know, right. Shelley, nothing, no problem with that. Yeah. But yeah. your poetry draws in so much. Vasily Kandinsky, you know, uh, Coltrane, Mingus. Yeah. H- yeah. How do you introduce them that, to them that they can draw from pop culture, from the classics too? Yeah. you know, anything? Yeah, well, you know, there's a really great yeah. great thing about, about popular culture is that, mm-hmm. you know, um, one of the other poets that they almost always know about is T.S. Eliot. You know, and you go back and look, and he's talking about the, doing the grizzly bear and these kind of dances that are part of popular culture at the time. But since he's T.S. Eliot, you know, we look back at it, and it's you know gets annotated and footnoted because he's T.S. Eliot. You know, instead of saying, "Oh yeah, that was a dance that he," you know, he probably wasn't very good at. You know, and so I look at them like, look, they they had their version of it. We have ours. You know, so there's no reason that 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 material can't uh, uh, make itself known in a poem. Mm-hmm. I mean, the problem, of course, is, and this is a problem I think maybe with mixology, 
or or a challenge that it will face if people continue trying you know, to read it, you know, even in a couple of years, is that things time out. You know, um, there mm. are there are references in the book that make sense today that made more sense three years ago. You know, made even more sense six years ago when I wrote the book. Um, and so, you know, as they time out, the poems might not have the same value. Um, to to people because and, and we talked about this earlier. You, you mentioned Soul Train, um, and how maybe not everybody knows about that. It's a cultural reference that could time out. I just thought of something. You know, the, the, one of the, the the really wonderful things about poetry is that it 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 lives maybe longer than we realize it would. And so when I was here, I wrote a poem about Miles Davis, and uh, it was the very first poem I wrote that I felt like was a poem, you know, like I think I just did it. I wrote it in that field right across from Yogi's <laughs> one afternoon. But I thought I would read it because it yeah. ended up being in my first book, like, yeah, that would be you great. know, a long, long, much later, and I haven't read it in a long time. Um, it's called Miles Runs the Voodoo Down, um, named after the song of the same title. Miles runs the voodoo down. Back to the crowd, Miles hunches against the spotlight's weight. He is a fist of glitter punched up through the stage. His horn strains methodic notes for the crooked-eyed cats and exomniacs and octaves at his feet. When he plays, lily-gray smoke, swirls of light stretching up from his eyes, muted reflections in coffee cups crumbling like the discarded orange of cigarette butts that hit the floor as squeaking, squealing subway wheels, metal lips shivering against metal wheels, sparks spraying to the sides, heating a path on the overcoats of businessmen, unshaven in movie poster rows, late for work again, briefcases filled with noise again, hanging arms numbly near the floor. He never turns, only passes from the stage, sweat trailing in sequin drops, Miles' voice in the background like dry rocks. Walk like that, baby. Yeah, walk like that. That's a really powerful image of the fist punching up through the stage. You, know, you can see Miles, that's, that pose yeah. he had bent back, but then yeah, forward, yeah, you know, curled yeah. forward. I mean, you know, he yeah. was the beginning of a lot of that stuff for me, I think, you know. Mm. I mean, I, I was joking. Uh, I, gave a, I gave a reading a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and I was joking that all my, bo- my books are about daddy issues, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is funny since we started out by talking about my father. Um, but I think Miles Davis was the beginning of that, kind of looking at these, these figures and trying to figure out who they are and what they might have to offer us mm-hmm. beyond their artistic output. Mm-hmm. You know, because Miles is like one of my favorite musicians, mm-hmm. but he also had this very complicated and um, many times reprehensible relationship with like Cicely Tyson, for example, and the way he treated her. And so trying to negotiate the thing that the, the man creates mm-hmm. with the person he appears to be in whatever capacity is a challenge. It makes me think of Jack Johnson yeah. in yeah. Uh, uh, The Big Smoke, mm-hmm. which was a finalist for the National Book Award. <laughs> and, uh, wow, you know, maybe talk a little bit about just the nomination and yeah. how that's affected your life. Um, well, the world got a lot bigger, you know. I mean, there are the, the National Book Foundation um, has been incredibly supportive and very generous to me. Both, I mean, it was great to be in the conversation at all. But even afterward, they've been very supportive of of the book and and kind of 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 me as a, as a writer, and I have, I have a lot of um, appreciation for them and what they do. Um, and I, it, so, 
It was amazing, but it was also incredibly overwhelming because the National Book Award is something that is public in a very different way than most poetry prizes are, or you know, or most literary prizes are. You know, they announced it on like MSNBC on Morning Joe or something. You know, they it's like a two month run up to the actual ceremony. So for two months, it's like who's going to win? It could be the Big Smoke, or it might be Incarnadine. We don't know. You got to tune in, and so it's like this thing where they're really drumming up interest for literature at the same time as they're helping get the books out into the world, you know. And that was really amazing. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah, and you know, out there. and um, I honestly, I mean, and I've said I've said this to to many people. I never thought I was actually going to win, and so for me, it was just a great, great. Like, it was just a wonderful journey, and I brought my wife and my daughter to the to the ceremony it's this like crazy black tie thing and there was a red carpet and so I got to bring my family with me to this and so it was a really wonderful wonderful experience um it's like you know not false humility about the book I'm so proud of that book and I I want it to do well it's just that the people that were also nominated were so good you know Mm -hmm. um and they're just such, you know, Frank Bedart and Lucy Brock Broido and Matt Rasmussen and, you know, uh, of course, Mary Shebus who won. I mean, these were re- really amazing writers. And so at first I thought, you know, wait a minute, I might have a little, I might have a shot. I got a one in five chance. And then I read the other books and was like, yeah, <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not happening. But it's okay. You know, it was so wonderful to be there. The, the ceremony, did you get to read poems during the, the ceremony? Yeah, you know, there was a, there was a reading where every... Um, nominee from every category read. Uh, it was the night before the actual event. And so the way that the National Book Awards work is that they don't decide until, I think, the day before the actual ceremony who the winners are. So nobody can leak it. And so um, we're all there reading, and it was just a, a really extraordinary experience yeah. to hear these these uh, writers, fiction writers, nonfiction writers, um, and poets all reading their work just one after another. I was proud of my daughter for standing in on it because it was a long night for, for literary people because it was so there was so much wonderful stuff coming our way. But for a kid, you know, I mean, she was the only person there under probably 15 or 20. You know, I mean, there weren't a lot of young people at the reading because you had to buy tickets. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that usually precludes people <laughs> that are younger. Um, but anyway, like she, she, uh, she was there and she was standing in like a boss, you know, listening to these people read and she had her favorites. Um, she really, really liked Lucy Brock Broido and she really liked Frank Bedard. She decided mm-hmm. that they were like her people. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, she really liked James McBride who ended up winning the prize in fiction. Oh yeah. And those were the people that she decided, yeah, you know what? And this wasn't based on their work. She met them and decided that they were all just awesome. good people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you know, we haven't really talked about uh, the big smoke, yeah. and that's your most recent book. Yeah, and it got the National Book Award or mm. nominated for the National Book Award, yeah. and then also um, you were a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is amazing and yeah. must be really interesting for you to be yeah. in that kind of position. And yeah, that's yeah. that's a place I never imagined that I would be. And so it was really complicated to, to, to negotiate that, you know. I mean, I just, when they announced the, the Pulitzer winner and, and, and finalists, uh, because unlike the National Book Award, they, all, they just announce all of the Pulitzer stuff at once. So nobody knows in advance. It just everybody finds out at the same time. And I just assumed there would be no way 
that that my book would be involved in that. And I, I mean, it doesn't matter. I was so I've, I've been so uh, fortunate um, that the book has done what it's done. And so I was critiquing poems for my workshop. You know, you were uh, working. Yeah, I was working yeah. when the announcements were going on. And my wife came screaming down the stairs, and um, you know, she was the one that told me that the book was a, was was a, one of the finalists for it. You know, it was it's it's a it's a wonderful. I mean, it's a wonderful honor. You know, and, and I think that one of the things that it, all of this experience. I mean, the the, the National Book Award uh, nomination and Pulitzer, and then uh, you know, the book also won the Annisfeld Wolf Prize, and and it like all of the things that it's gotten reminded me of what this is all really about. I mean, this whole thing has been about Jack Johnson. It's not about me. It's not about my work. It's about Jack Johnson. It's about his story. It's about his wife, Etta, and his mistresses, Hattie and Belle, the people that are in this book. You know, it's about them. And if anything, that's what, that, like, these awards have reminded me that, you know, hey, there's this, there's this story that I've been lucky enough to be entrusted with you know, it's like, it's not my, it's not my deal. Mm-hmm. Somehow I got tapped to tell this story and I still have not figured out how exactly that happened, but I've gotten tapped to tell the story. And, um, what I try to do was do the best I could to tell that story. Yeah. I was going to ask you, um, you know, how did, you know, the story of Jack Johnson come to you and why you chose him and, um, to do, you know, actually, uh, tell his life story, yeah. um, through poetry, um, yeah. How did that come about? Well, you know, I yeah, I talked about my mom earlier and mm-hmm. how <laughs> how much she liked The Devil's Garden because she's in it, you know. Um, but she also re- liked The Big Smoke because she was the one that first mentioned Jack Johnson to me. You know, when I was a kid, we used to watch, my mom and dad and I would watch fights on TV because, you know, they were, it was on ABCY World of Sports and stuff back then. It's like the mid-late, you know, mid-late 70s. And, you know, all the great heavyweights would be on TV. You have to, it wasn't pay-per-view. It was none of that kind of, you know, none of those hijinks. It was just turn on the TV, there's boxing, you know. And so we'd watch these fights and uh, my parents would bet, you know. And if my, the person that my mother was backing didn't win her response was always like yeah but whatever he's no jack johnson and i never understood what that meant because i didn't know who jack johnson was and then you know around 2004 or 2005 i saw a picture of him and i thought man who is this guy you know and i started doing a little bit of work um started to watch like the first I don't know, 45 seconds of ken burns documentary unforgivable blackness and I just turned it off. I'm like, okay, I need to find this out myself. There's something here. And I thought it was going to be an essay about this relationship that I had with my mom about boxing. And the more I learned about Jack Johnson, the more I realized that this is a cycle of poems. It's not an essay. And then I got even further. I'm like, it's not a cycle of poems. It's a whole book of poems. And so I spent two years researching Jack Johnson's biography and the times he lived in. You know, and the things around, like, the, to try to get a sense of this three-dimensional world that he lived in before I wrote any poetry, like, I, before I wrote a, a poem. And the first poem that I wrote was a, um, a poem called uh, Sporting Life, and I thought maybe I would read it. Oh, that'd be great. And it's in the voice of Jack Johnson, as many of the poems in this book are. Sporting Life. People are always talking about if and suppose like those words are worth more than money. 
more than the crease a silk stocking makes on a woman's thigh, more than the grumble of a Thomas Flyer engine. So I take the side of my pleasure, two small words, if and suppose, and nobody can explain them. We get in this world what we're going to get. After all, one man can roll out of bed and be killed while another man falls from a scaffold and lives. A man can get a bullet in the brain and keep his life while some other poor sap dies from a shot in the leg. It's all luck and perspective. Pleasure is both to me. You know, I'm so impressed with how you created, you know, this person, Jack Johnson, for Mm. people, for the reader. uh, Thank you. It has these qualities of a novel, you know, because you have all these voices, all these different people. Um, You cover, you know, the issues of race in America in the early part of the century, the last century. Um, So the research you did was pretty serious stuff. Yeah, it was a long time. It took me eight years to write the book, and I was researching the whole time. I just started that first two years getting a foundation for what I might, you know, what I might need to be able to create this, this universe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny cause I, when I first met with my editor about this, uh, um, we had lunch and we were talking about this and I told him that what I really wanted, like if I could do it, I would have written this as a novel, but that's not the way that my I, understanding of language works, you know? And so I started trying to figure out ways to shape the voices in the book to emulate the kinds of progressions that novels make. I mean, who says that a novel can't be monologues? I mean, like, where is it written that it has to be, you know, page after page of paragraphs? Why can't it be, you know? And so I started trying to think of the way that I could shape these people talking, you know, thinking about, like, Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, where he's got all these, Mm -hmm. you know, different voices telling the story, you know, or... um, Michael Antache's really uh, amazing book, Coming Through Slaughter, which is like a hybrid of poetry and prose, you know, where are the, you know, there are these models out there uh, for it. I mean, of course, in poetry, there are too. You know, there's this great book called Lead Belly by a guy named Tyamba Jess. And it's about the, you know, the the blues musician Mm -hmm. Lead Belly. And there are like 20 voices in the book. Like it's all persona and they're like 20 different voices. Lead Belly's guitar has a voice. The machine that records Lead Belly talks. Like it's all of these different voices. And, you know, and the idea is somehow for this whole thing to come together, you know, coalesce and tell a story. You know, this book differs maybe slightly from from Lead Belly because I always had in mind a narrative. Like I always thought that the narrative moment wasn't only inside of the poem, but it was supposed to all build up to some other kind of climax. I mean, and maybe, you know, maybe Tayama probably thought, you know, was thinking of that way too, but he has so many crazy voices. Like I personally got so enamored with all of those voices that I mm-hmm. forgot, <laughs> you know, like it's not his thing. It's my thing. I was just like, wow, you know, how did you do this? So anyway, and I mean, I, and I talked with Tayama quite a bit while I was oh, working did. on this yeah. book. Yeah, I mean, we're friends. And, and one of the things that, um, he said that became ended up being so true was that the toughest poems he said the toughest poems for him to write were the poems and the voices of the women in the book and that was 100 percent the most difficult thing for me to do you know mm-hmm. i mean you've got jack johnson and he's got autobiographies he's got like audio recordings of interviews he's got all of these different texts to sort of verify his voice or to 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 some other way model that but his girlfriend and his mistresses didn't have those things. So not only was I trying to negotiate cross-gender concerns, you know, like trying to figure out how I could possibly 
imagine the mindset of a woman in 1910, a white woman in 1910, who would be married to an African-American man. Like, you know, any one of those troublings would be enough, you know. A woman, like, that's already impossible for me to to negotiate. But then a woman in 1910 just makes it even more difficult. And so it took forever. So much to orchestrate and get get right. You know, and that was the thing. I just, I didn't want to be wrong about it. You know, I mean, like I come from a culture of like comic book geeks and like jazz snobs. You know what I mean? And like, you know, a jazz snob will call you out in a second. That was not, in fact, Eric Dolphy on that. That was, you know, Youssef Latif or whatever, you know, and then you're sitting there trying to pick up your face. Right. Um, I, I didn't want to be like that with this book. You know, I wanted it to be this thing where, you know, people might want to, might be able to question some of the um, the dramatic moments, but if his fight happened in Reno, it happened in Reno, really. You know, if he was in Chicago when he got arrested, he was in Chicago. You know, I mean, I tried to stick to those really fundamental truths of his story, both because I didn't want anybody to, to, to question the authority of the text in that way, but also because I wanted to show respect to the stories in the book. I wanted to give them the proper deference. I, I had a question about uh, shadow boxing, those oh, poems. Yeah, yeah. That was really um, a special part of the book for me because oh, it's almost you. like he's dealing he's dealing with himself, obviously. It's mm-hmm. a shadow who he's he's yeah. shadow boxing with. Yeah. But then the shadow talks back to him. Yeah. Trying to keep yeah. him straight, you know, kinda of calling <laughs> him on stuff. Yeah. It's really really great part of the book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate it. That was it was a lot of fun to write. I mean there are lots of difficult there are many, many difficult evenings where I was working through these poems, but it was a great joy to write those shadow boxing poems. Because they were the last poems I wrote in the book. Um, and, and I mentioned that I was in Marfa. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was there, I, uh, I, that's when I conceived those poems. Like, I really want to take credit for it, like 100%, but it wasn't my idea. I had a teacher named Marilyn Nelson, who's a really brilliant poet. She wrote this great book called The Home Place that... Um, it was actually it was a finalist for the National Book Award, maybe eight, 1989 or something. But she's a poet laureate of Connecticut. I mean, she's like got this long and varied career, but she writes a lot of research-based texts. When I was talking to her about this, when I was first starting to write the poem, she said, you know, I always had this idea for a poem that, um, in which the, the protagonist would speak to his shadow. And I thought, you know, at the time, this was early, and I was like, eh, that doesn't sound like, that good of an idea but it's Marilyn Nelson's person who I respect and admire so much so I was like oh yeah that's great thanks man um and what it was was my knuckleheaded self needed to catch up <laughs> you know what I mean it's like uh she, I, she needed to slow down and let me catch up with her idea and so it took me like three years and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm sitting in Marfa trying to figure out how to create a vehicle for Jack Johnson to be honest in the book because he's his monologues aren't necessarily honest and then I thought, oh, you know, it would be really smart as if he, he shadow boxes, maybe you should talk to his shadow. And I was like, that's brilliant. And then I realized it wasn't my idea. <laughs> you know? And so anyway, you know, but I, but I, I modeled the shadow after um, Richard, a Richard Pryor character. He had this character named Mudbone. If you remember yeah. Mudbone, you know, Mudbone would always call Richard Pryor out. He's like, that boy messed up, you know. He set himself on fire with a crack pipe or whatever. I wanted to have some version of that for Jack Johnson. And so I, I created the voice so that it is not beholden to the time and language of the time. Like it doesn't speak like any of the other voices in the, in, in the book. 
Um, it talks about things that maybe are a little bit out of the time that the book exists and, you know, and then Jack Johnson talks back and, and they're the only poems in the book that there's a dialogue, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're the interview poems, but that's different, you know, but these are like, you know, two people, like, you know, the shadow and they're talking back and forth in those poems. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe I should read one. Yeah. They're, know. yeah, please do. Um, yeah. Shadow boxing. Shadow, hard work is the only way I'll get to the heavyweight championship. That's why I'm the only fighter in Philadelphia doing road work on Saturday night. I'm the only one chasing these chickens and doing calisthenics in the gaslight. I could be on the town, a pretty lady in my lap and my arm around another. Instead, I'm sparring with you while the other fighters are out two-stepping. Ring the bell, Mr. Might Be Negro Champion. I got this dance. The shadow knows. From day one, we aspire to be more than the average Negro. None of that yassa boss and watermelon rind smile for us. We want Crayle cooked in butter. We want gold where the gap too should be. Clarity for the Negro character. We want high styling clothing, gold rings on our fingers like Greek architecture, and gold pocket watches in our vest coats. More women than coats. White women in our architecture. We want peculiar and instinctual satisfaction. We want to be prize fighting's main attraction the heavyweight champion of the world. When we rise up, the whole Negro race rises up with us. When we get to the top, it's just us. No use for Negroes then, not even ourselves. Hmm. One of the things that I did is I did, you know, I did a lot of archival work with looking at these old new t- newspaper, like in the microfilm and microfiche type stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, looking at these old newspaper uh, articles about Johnson and um, because he was you know he was very aware of how to present himself to the world I mean mm-hmm. he was a contemporary athlete like he's like a 21st century athlete in his um, appetites you know he's got all these women he's got these fast cars and these really wonderful clothes mm-hmm. that he would change like and he would change three or four times a day so that people could see how resplendent he was mm-hmm. you know um, and and so I was going through these things kind of looking for for bits and pieces and there are a few poems in the book that are named like titled with quotes that I found mm-hmm. from um from other texts and that was one of them mm-hmm. let me i'm going to say something about that and maybe i'll read it sure um, sure so the thing about boxing back then or, and maybe boxing now in some in some instances is that it was all a show you know i mean it's not wwe kind of show like not professional wrestling not that egregious but you know they knew that people were there to be entertained so more often than not fights that should have ended in a round or two would get stretched out to seven or eight rounds so people would feel like they got their money's worth you know um, and then when motion pictures happened like when that became part of the equation and they really kept it going because there was money involved like you know they could anything after five rounds they could sell and they would so they would take they would film the fight and then take the fight film on tour to different towns and people would pay a nickel and or whatever and the fighters would get a cut so jack johnson always thought about this when he was fighting once that was because he knew he could make more money that way a struggle between a demon and a gritty little dwarf. The longer the fight lasts, the more the moving picture rights are worth. That's the reason I keep Ketchel off the canvas. He might have called himself the assassin, but I played with him in the ropes like a cat does a mouse, lacing him just enough to bring blood for the show. That's what prize fighting is, a show. The better man almost always wins, but we all play our part in the spectacle. Ketchell's handlers dressed him up as the part of a heavyweight using high boots and extra coats. 
Underneath it all, he was strictly a middleweight, and I picked him up, held him high so his feet dangled like a Sunday chicken on that special morning. Then I smiled the only, at the only colored in the crowd, hatless, next to all those whites in their bowlers and bright ribbon fedoras. I heard Ketchell's second slap canvas and yelled, Now then, Stanley. But I didn't see the double cross coming until Ketchell's hook stung me behind the ear. I dropped, stopped my fall with a glove before I hit canvas. The referee started counting, and the buzzing sound started inside my ears like a crowd before the fight. All those spectators hoping Ketchell would put me down. The crowd quieted when I smiled my gold smile, punched the dust off my gloves. Quiet enough to hear me hit Ketchell so hard we both fell down. Quiet enough to hear the one, two, three of his teeth hitting canvas like chicken scratch. Two of his uppers got stuck in my glove. Quiet as Ketchell sprawled like he was counting clouds on a sunny day and the referee counted him out slowly for fear of his own skin. I didn't show I was scared, but I was. I leaned casually on the top rope, waiting for a twitch, a breath, any sign the man would be a man again. Hmm. Let's see. I had another question about um, the big smoke. Um, You know, the three women. Yeah. um, Yeah. Hattie, Belle, and Etta. Yeah. And there's interviews with with Belle, correct? There are transcripts from from her... her, her trial. Her, she was part of the Mann Act trial that, that you know, in which Jack Johnson was convicted. Do you want to uh, explain the Mann Act? Yeah. So the Mann <clears throat> Act was um, initially instituted to prevent prostitution across state lines, which is kind of funny. why not prevent it inside state lines too? But you know, it was specifically for you know, the, if someone took a prostitute across state lines for immoral purposes, they'd be trans. You know, they'd be prosecuted for the Man Act. Mm-hmm. It was, I think it was nineteen ten or nineteen eleven that they they started doing this, and um, and Johnson, you know, was married to Etta, but he had these two mistresses, Hattie and Belle, and both of them were prostitutes. Um, when he met them. And so the government was like, all right, like, this is how we can get this guy. I mean, it, this is a really simplified version of it. I mean, I, I, there's some things that I don't want to do because it'll sort of spoil parts of the books. And I hope somebody will like, and even if they don't read this, I hope that they'll learn more about Jack Johnson, you know, so I don't want to spoil that part of them of it for them. But Bell w- turned state's evidence and she was glad to do so because uh, Jack Johnson's wife, Etta, put the ultimatum on him. was like, look, you need to get rid of them. And he did. You know, he gave her $500 and a train ticket back to Chicago. And she got back. She was mad. And nobody would employ her in her former uh, job because she'd been with an African-American man. And everybody knew it, you mm-hmm. know. And so she couldn't go back and become a the kind of high-class uh, consort that she was when Jack Johnson met her. And so she was understandably really bitter about it. And when the uh, government came calling when the uh the justice department came calling she was more than happy to tell and you know and there's a lot to that story but one of the things that always makes me laugh about it is that part of jack johnson's thing was he would make when bell would come on trips with him he would make her keep the receipts before he'd reimburse her right like so if she stayed in the hotel he'd want the hotel receipt right so when the government comes to see if she can help corroborate these charges, she's got all these receipts and, and evidence that she'd been traveling with him, mm. you know? And so, I mean, all of it was trumped up anyway. She was no longer a prostitute. It was like, it was that those things weren't actually accurate. He was, you know, but the fact that part of who he was and part of the way he, he dealt with the people in his life led him 
to it was going to happen no matter what. Mm. I mean, the government was done with this really outspoken, very wealthy, you know, African-American man sitting on the heavyweight title when there's nobody could take it from him. One way or another, he was going to go down. And so one of the greatest uh, pleasures of the research around all this was I got a Department of Justice file that was declassified, I think, maybe in the mid-90s, late 90s. Um, And it was 400 documents of the government, like, following Jack Johnson around, putting together this this case first. And then he just, after he was convicted, he ran, and they followed him to Europe. And, and, and it's just all these telegrams and letters from the agents following him around that paints a really interesting, it creates a really interesting picture of what he was doing. Mm. Um, yeah, and it was all classified. Mm. Uh, but, the, you know, the statutes ran out, and so then we were able to get to it. Um, and so there would be these letters from Jack Johnson to his friends saying, you know, they love me in Paris. I'm living the high life. It's amazing. And then there would be telegrams from the, the agents, and they're like, he's broke. You know, his wife's about to leave him. We can pick him up whenever you want. And the the bureau was like, no, just let him just let him stay out there. We don't need him right now, you know. And so there's this really interesting back and forth that gets created from all of these these other texts mm-hmm. about him. He he was he was a very complicated person. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, he was. I mean, you know, you mentioned his size. He mm-hmm. was he's a beautiful man. Yeah. He loved fast cars. Yeah, yeah, very and, very magnetic. I mean, he's so much of a, a contemporary athlete. I mean, he had gold teeth. <laughs> shaved head, you know, mm-hmm. and he didn't need them. It wasn't some kind of dental thing. He got them because he wanted them. You know, it wasn't some, mm-hmm. you know, dentist didn't decide that he needed you know, gold incisors. He wanted this to show everybody who he was. I mean, his parents were slaves. You know, he's a first generation after emancipation. So here's this man who um, wants more. You know, he wants it all um, because his parents had nothing. I mean, less than nothing. They were somebody else's property, so their ledger was below zero. You know what I mean? And and so he's coming from this this family um, in this environment in a place that gave him hope that he could change this. I mean, he was in Texas and in Galveston, and it seemed like, I mean, things, it's weird to me because I lived in Texas for a little while, and it always seemed very, it's like a very complicated place racially. But um, at the turn of the century, it was much more permissive than other places, like Houston and Galveston. These these towns on the Gulf were uh, a little bit more comfortable with, you know, African Americans and and, and white pe- whites living in the same neighborhood, for example. Simple stuff. But he's growing up in that space, um, thinking that hey, you know, there's a chance I could do whatever I want, um, when in fact, there really wasn't. You know, I mean, he was able to achieve it, but it was like through an unbelievable amount of skill and tenacity. You know, I mean, it's easy to 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 forget, right? But at the turn of the century, when Jack Johnson was heavyweight champion in 1908, um, it's like heavy duty Jim Crow segregation, lynchings. You know, people like African Americans getting shot just because. And here's this man who holds the most coveted title in sports. Like, every, you know, the heavyweight champion of the world is the toughest man in the world. And here he is, and he's black. You know, and they're like, you know, we got to get rid of this guy. Somebody could have killed him at any time, and nobody would have complained. Mm-hmm. So every day that he went out to fight, 
every day he changed clothes and went out to show how resplendent he was, somebody could have shot him and nobody would have said anything. They probably would have, you know, people would have cheered. And this is what this man's life was like, mm-hmm. that kind of pressure. Yeah. You know. No wonder so many people, like, revered him. Um, yeah. Like, you know, connections with Ali mm-hmm. and his refusal to fight in the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, We know Miles Davis. He has an album called Jack yeah. Johnson. Yeah, um, yeah. So. It ended up being the soundtrack for... Was I don't know if it, well maybe I'm getting it mixed up. It was I, I almost started to say that it was the soundtrack for the Great White Hope, but I don't think it was um, because Jack Johnson the the album that Jack Johnson album is is amazing, and the Great White Hope as a movie is not amazing. So, the James Earl Jones, yeah, James Earl Jones is a great job. Yes, you know, but this but the 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 play that it's based on Sackler's play is is fairly disastrous in terms mm. of its. Um, you know, it's authenticity, you know, um, and I've got lots of squabbles with it, but it just occurred to me. And I, mm-hmm. like, I, I hadn't even thought about this. Sackler's play won a Pulitzer prize in 19, like I think it was 1976. Huh? So the play, the great white hope won the Pulitzer prize. And then this book almost won. Mm-hmm. It's his story. I'm mm-hmm. trying to tell you this story is got something to it. Even when you do it wrong, like Sackler did, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's yeah. still, you know, it's still it's so compelling because mm-hmm. it has all of those things that we think about when we think about drama. It's got this charismatic man who's flawed, mm-hmm. and it's got these beautiful women around them that are also flawed. He's um, got this external pressure about race and politics and economics and all of these things, there's a confluence of them in this man's life. And the fact that he was able to, at least just even for just a short time, to supersede all of that. Adrian is going to read the poem Prize Fighter for us from his book, The Big Smoke. Prize Fighter. I love horses because they will outrun the fastest man. They are majestic, as stately as a Saturday woman before a party. Horses smell like what it means to be fast, sweat and gravel kicked up on early morning runs, the in and out of breath like gravel and tired lungs. I groomed and raced horses from Texas to Philadelphia until one broke my leg bone with a back kick. Thanks to that break, I can't ride anymore, and even if I could, we got these automobiles now, and they can carry us a mile a minute. I'm buying the fastest one I can find when I get my money together. I'm like an automobile in the ring. My fists work like cranked up engines. I've got the kind of elasticity other fighters dream about after I put them to sleep on the canvas. When I clench a man, it's like being swaddled in forgiveness. When I hook a man, it's like being hit by frustration. I can't tell if horses are happy or confounded by this new means of locomotion, but I can say with certainty my prize-fighting cohorts are decidedly dissatisfied by my presence. I've been speaking today with Adrian Matika. Thank you for being with us. This is Dave Tornio for Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.